0: Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is the former presidential advisor, serially successful entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Dr. Pippa Malmgren. Now, I've tried to get Pippa on this show for many years, so I'm very excited about this conversation. We cover a ton of ground. I will not try to summarize this conversation, but what I will say is it was, without question, one of my top five conversations I've ever had on the YouTube channel, so I know that you're going to enjoy it. As always, right beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I absolutely love writing it and would love to have you join the team. Here is Dr. Pippa Malmgren, enjoy. Okay, here I am with Dr. Pippa Malmgren. Pippa, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. It's great to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Okay, so here's, uh, here's a place we can start to frame the conversation. If you were to put yourself into the future, you know, mid-2030s, early-2040s, and you're reflecting back on the 2020s, how will this decade be remembered and be defined in the history books? How do you think?
1: Oh, that's a really cool question. I think that, um, honestly, it it will be seen as an enormous transition period where we moved out of a very, very long peace dividend that was brought about by the end of the Soviet Union and supposedly capitalism winning the fight. And that peace dividend for many people has been their whole life. So they think that's normal. And what we're having now is a return to what I think is normal, which is you usually are having geopolitical stress one way or another, and you have to manage it in an ongoing way. And the chances of getting back to the same kind of totally reliable peace dividend that we had is not, it's not, it's not easy. It's possible, but it can take a lot of work. And second, it was a period of technology transition where we had a sudden burst in innovation that absolutely changed the landscape of the world economy and therefore also society. And I I do think that what we're witnessing is not just on a par with the Industrial Revolution, it's a multiple of the, it's exponential on the Industrial Revolution. And so I'm very optimistic that we will end up in a much better place with the world economy than we had before the 2020s, but the transition process is really, you know, bumpy and hard for humans to handle because for whatever reason, human beings don't seem to like change.
0: Yeah, it's scary, right? Well, you don't know what's around the corner, right? Yeah. We like predictability and certainty. I get that. Okay, so, yeah, that's, so that's really interesting because there's kind of two buckets there. There's the uh, transition from the era of peace. And you said some people have lived their whole lives. I feel like I have, you know, my whole life has been the era of increasingly globalized economies and the sharing of goods and trust, you know, fragile as it might have been global trust. And the second is the technology transformation. Now, you could interpret that first piece as us moving to a harder time in history, right? We're moving from a place of peace to therefore a place of not peace. Like, what does that mean? But then you followed up and said the technology transformation will put us in a much better place than we were in in the 2020s. And so You sound optimistic about the long-term outlook. Is that correct?
1: I am. uh, And I guess I'm one of the few economists that is an optimist at this point. And I've actually been really impressed at the way the world economy and the major economies have actually withstood so many blows. I mean, everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong, right? In the last, what, 18 months, two years. Um, And yet actually markets are still working okay there's been repricing but it hasn't if you had told people this is what's coming there's going to be a global pandemic there's going to be a breakdown of the relationship between the US and China the chinese economy is going to tank i mean all, a war is going to break out in western europe if you told people these things before it happened they would have said it would have be total annihilation mm. in the world economy and in the stock markets instead we've had an adjustment so i think that's that's encouraging we we are way more resilient than we think on the other hand i'm also a, quite a realist and i wrote a piece in october i think it was october 29th 2021 where i said we're already in world war 3 but people don't recognize it and the reason is because world war 3 is very different from one and two it is not about human-to-human battle, leaving aside what has happened in Ukraine. That is a symptom, in, to my mind, of a much larger phenomena. And I think one of the problems we have is that the press and the media are so focused on Ukraine. And I've asked them, why aren't you reporting any of the other events that matter, which I'll describe in a moment? And they've said, it's the old rule. If it bleeds, it leads. So if you have dead and displaced humans, it's a story. So when I say, yeah, but we have events like, for example, 50 days before the Russians rolled into Ukraine, there was a very important event in a tiny little island in the Arctic Circle that's part of Norway called Svalbard. And that was somebody went to cut the internet cable there, which is the fastest internet connection in the world. And why is it the fastest in the world in this ridiculously remote place? It's because virtually every high altitude satellite, whether commercial or military or the International Space Station, they all connect to earth at Svalbard. So that was a hell of a a shot across the bow because what that is about is taking out all of your guidance systems for your missiles, but also cutting out all satellite-based uh interconnectivity so when i talk to regular people they're like well they do not really get missile guidance but if i say okay no more gps means no more uber eats mm-hmm. okay then everybody's like oh my god okay this is huge right yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we are we are having satellite wars we're having wars in space we're having so what i've described it as is an invisible war um it is kinetic And it's a hot hot war in cold places, namely space, the Arctic and the high north. Um, And it's a cold war in hot places, namely Africa and the Pacific Ocean. And um, in all these, the media reports the events, but doesn't give any overarching narrative to explain why Ukraine is a symptom of a much larger conflict between the US, NATO on one side, and Russia and China on the other.
0: You you know, you you brought this up, and I'm glad you did. The internet was cut in Svalbard, which I didn't know this story until I heard you discuss it in a previous interview. The significance of this is, as you said, there's been some pretty monumental events occur. Maybe the Nord Stream Pipeline will be another, right? Pretty consequential event. We don't really know what happened there. There's a lot of speculation and theories, some with evidence, but we don't know, you know, Spalbard's interesting one. It was completely off my radar. So this is the point where all high altitude satellites connect to earth communication systems. Therefore, would that mean that, um, allies and adversaries both have utility there? Okay. And to the best of your knowledge, is there any clarity on who would have disrupted that, uh, system?
1: Uh, so it's it's part of this, as you say, like with Nord Stream, it's kind of this invisible space where no one wants to say, okay. because if you say who it is, then you're provoking a direct confrontation. And because the Russians have been quick to threaten nuclear, everyone is afraid to say anything. So at the time... Admiral Sir Tony Radakin, who is the chief of the British defense forces and interestingly, a, a naval officer. We've typically had army guys in charge, but I think part of the reason the British appointed a naval officer is because a lot of this confrontation is occurring uh, in open spaces at sea. And if you think about it, space is a continuation of the ocean in one, in, 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 if you think about it logically, it's not land, right? so he basically said you know under normal circumstances this might be considered an act of war it was that severe and it was all over like the daily mail which is the biggest you know red publication in the world and yet then it just stopped and i I think it just stopped because everyone suddenly realized if the west accuses russia of doing this russia responds with okay we will go nuclear And all of the scenarios with Russia tend to see a very quick jump to the nuclear threat. So since nobody wanted that to happen, it's all just kind of calmed down. Um, But are we in a situation where, for example, you know, how are wars typically conducted? We're used to wars where they're, first of all, on the ground, so a journalist can go there and see it. It involves humans wearing uniforms and boots on the ground. So there's a certain visceral quality to it. In the wars I'm describing, you have events happening in space. The Russians and Chinese have both been you know, blowing up their own satellites in space in order to deprive others of access to those orbits. Because when you blow up a satellite, it creates this debris field they call the Kessler effect that has been described as razor blades in a washing machine, right? So basically it's a denial of access physically to certain orbits. And this is occurring just as humanity is about to go back to the moon, right? There's a huge space race between the U.S. and China as to who is going to build a base on the moon first. And both sides keep bringing forward the target date. Um, And the NASA administrator keeps saying uh, it really matters who gets there first because Whoever's above has a strategic advantage over everything below. So, you know, and again, events at sea, like underwater cutting of internet cables. And we've had many incidents. The Marseille cable has been cut three times. I think it was around October, 2022. That connects Asia and Europe and the US, right? These are not a small linkage. Um, And I guess because these cable cuts get repaired pretty quickly, or because luckily somebody's thought ahead and there's redundancy built in, nobody gets too worried about it. But these cable cuts are a genuine issue. And it's only a few weeks ago that someone cut the main cable that connects Taiwan to the world. So what do we call this subsea warfare without uniforms, without knowing who did what, it's a kind of intrigue that um, I think is on a par with the Cold War era where we also didn't have a lot of visibility and relied, frankly, on literature like James Bond and, hmm. you know, Robert Ludlum to and to tell us what is happening in the Cold War, because there wasn't anything in the public domain that could really help you.
0: That's fascinating. And so, OK, so, you know, a couple things here, China and Russia Blowing up satellites in order to create pseudo minefields in important orbits, right? That could otherwise be used for satellite placement. Um, I'm out of my league here in terms of uh expertise, so correct me if I'm, you know. And then uh continual disruption of these internet cables. You name the Marseille cable, you name the cable that connects Taiwan to the world. So what what happens in that scenario when and what is exactly what exactly does that mean? to destroy the cable that connects Taiwan to the world, what happens in, in Taiwan on that day, um, and, and how does that how does that impact land on the ground?
1: Yeah. Well, so I can't walk you through exactly the details. All I know is that if you if you cut the main cable, and I don't mean most of these cable cuts are not like one snip. Yeah. Most of them it it's two and they're taking a big chunk of the cable away. Okay. That's what happened in Svalbard. I think it was something like 6 kilometers of cable was just like gone. Just um it. so you can't like just fix that overnight, right? Luckily the, the Svalbard cable was a, a very redundant so there were backup cables in place. I'm sure Taiwan has backup cables too. It would be crazy if they didn't. But what it does is it sends a message. And then that requires a human interpretation of, okay, what is the meaning of this message? Uh, Does this indicate that there's a more um, serious probability of action? Uh, Just for example, in the last few days, we've seen um, China using its naval fleet to encircle Taiwan, which it's been doing annually, I think since 2018. But each time it happens, they show a little more capability, a little more force, um, do it a little less expectedly. And so that in conjunction with the internet cable having been cut only a few weeks before, it's a question of how do the leadership of our militaries inter- interpret these event- events? And maybe to finish on the subject, you know, it's like, Our militaries, and and I have some involvement in that world. I studied military history. I lecture at Sandhurst, which is Britain's um, equivalent of West Point. So in the peace dividend years, we basically drew down defense, right? It became a lesser priority. But in the last decade, it's been ticking up, and more and more resources have been spent on it. And I have argued that quantitative easing, when it came to an end, it shifted into defense spending. That defense spending became the new quantitative easing because you could throw a whole lot of money at that. and Nobody would ask any questions. And it's dispersing into the economy through the tech sector because war is now a technology phenomenon. I guess it always is, but it really is now. So... Um, What I see is that we put processes and procedures in place during this peace dividend period, and now all of a sudden there's a real possibility of actual conflict. Suddenly, everybody has forgotten there is uh, an art of statecraft. It's not just, oh, we have more aircraft carriers or more submarines. It's what is the art of the statecraft that allows you to manage deterrence, and deterrence demands dialogue right? Deterrence is not that you just stand there and say, I have more nuclear weapons than you. No, it's that you have that and you say, okay, let's talk. That's how deterrence really works. But it's almost like everybody's forgotten because it was so long ago that we had to engage in this kind of statecraft.
0: Okay, interesting. I want to understand that concept a bit more, but you know how I'm following thus far is that there's, there's a hot war going on in Europe. Russia invaded Ukraine and that's getting all the media attention and we look at, you know, maybe advancements by the Russian military as escalation in this conflict and you're saying there's actually messages of potential escalation occurring all over the place, but they're coming in the forms of severed cables, of disrupted orbits. Of, uh, of maybe North Stream. These are, these are subtle messages of potential escalation from one party to the other. And it's maybe unclear if it's from the East to the West or from the West to the East. Meanwhile, our attention is focused on, you know, tanks, guns, and knives on the ground in, in Europe. Um,
1: okay. Yes. So I want to,
0: I want to expand on that a little bit. If that is the distraction, you know, what's the bigger picture behind this conflict, right? When we talk about East versus West, what's who are the combatants in this conflict?
1: So this is the key question. Um, one way to think about it, let's let's take it from China's perspective for a moment. Just, it's not the one that one has to agree with them. It's just, you gotta understand what's their thought process. So they've got a billion people that need to have a better life. And so how are they gonna get there? Well, in the post-war period, the promise of the global economic infrastructure the rules of the game the world bank the imf the various agreements and treaties the world trade organization all of this was underpinned by a very simple idea which is whoever makes the best product can go out into the world and sell it and profit from it and you know it's fair and square but what The Chinese perceive is that when they started to do well, when they started to make all this product and money was flowing at an incredible rate into China, that this agitated the West because the West and America in particular lost jobs, right? All the jobs moved to China when they built their very first globally recognized brand and they haven't been good at building global brands. So the very first really great brand they built Huawei. What was the first thing that happened? The West shut it down, said, nope, this is the state's intelligence apparatus. This is not cool. And so Huawei's, um, you know, the chief financial officer was arrested and held in Canada. So the Chinese are like, wait, I thought these rules were set up so that anybody could play fair and square, but you're changing the rules of the game as we become the better players. And so the Russians have a similar view for different reasons. Their view is that um, they never lost the Cold War. They had a temporary setback, that they are a great superpower. They should not have to submit to the rules that the West has put in place, um, that they're equal and on a par, if not a more uh, sophisticated advanced power than the United States. And so that's unfair from their point of view. They, they got a raw deal in their view. So now China and Russia come together and they say, yeah, we got a raw deal. We don't, we don't like the world order that the Americans have put in place. So what are we going to do about it? And what we see is their alignment, which is very close up until the point of nuclear weapons. That's when we see the split. When, whenever Putin has said I might use nuclear weapons within an hour, the Chinese come out and say, no, they say truce, they say no first use, they say uh, constructive dialogue. So China doesn't want to go there. But other than that, they're deeply aligned. And if you saw their recent meeting between Putin and Xi, um, they talked about, you know, making changes to the world order that haven't been seen in 100 years. So what is it they're talking about? The answer is, creating a whole new sort of rules of the game. And that means they are challenging all the systems the West has put in place. They're challenging the dollar as the currency the world operates on. They're challenging the notion that only the US can um, have a blue water fleet. Uh, And so we see a lot of countries actually aligning behind the Russian-China axis, including Iran, Saudi has now stepped in and said, we wanna join the uh, Chinese equivalent of NATO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, And so suddenly the US and NATO are like, wait, what? Um, and, And just to finish on this, both Russia and China have military doctrine that basically says anything goes. The West does not have this. So when I say anything goes, it means, you know, in Ukraine, how have, how have the Russians created the greatest damage to the West? Has it really been with tanks? It's, of course, damaged Ukraine beyond belief. But what really damaged the West was the weaponization of food and energy prices. by By pushing food and energy prices up at a time when the West was experiencing inflation already, not accidental timing, right? And so weaponizing everything is part of that thought process. And when I talk to the NATO generals, Western generals about this, they go, we don't have doctrine for this. And I'm like, well, we're going to get some and figure out what is the appropriate way to think about these things in order to reach resolution and avoid having to actually have a war.
0: Right. And and it, it makes sense. You're going to leverage the tools that you have access to. And if the United States has the most powerful and advanced military in the world, and they've since also weaponized, you could say they've weaponized the dollar, you know, that's something else maybe off the, the battlefield in exchange. Well, Russia is the largest commodities exporter and they can leverage the, the tools they have and weaponize that. Now, as you're walking me through this, you know, it points me to something that I've I've heard you say, but I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, she uh, President Xi in this scenario is kind of getting everything that he wants, or it could seem that way right now in that maybe he uh, welcomes conflict with the West but doesn't want to be the combatant. Well, Russia is happy to play that role, charge in, engage in a hot war, be the aggressor and the sensational player here. And Xi actually gets to step back and actually be the diplomat in certain cases and say, no, nuclear is too far, all right? And so, you know, it's almost like the puppet master role here where yes, maybe we're retaliating for uh, repercussions on Huawei, but we're not actually having to take the action. We're going to let somebody else run in and throw the punch, and we're going to step back and, and uh, take the high road here. But under the surface, this is exactly how we want things to play out. Is this accurate?
1: I think that's a pretty good description, and, and we mustn't forget that China has gotten enormous intelligence out of Putin's brawl, right? By Putin creating right. a war zone, It has revealed how does the West respond? What is the public response? What is the positioning of U.S. and NATO military capability? Like, you know, it's a dream. If you're trying to understand a potential opponent, this is one of the best ways to do it. So I've been, you know, to just try to keep things a little lighthearted because these are heavy subjects. It is a little bit like two guys in a bar. And the Russian says to the Chinese, I hate NATO. I hate these Americans. I want to have a fight. And the Chinese guy says, you should do that. (laughs) So (laughs) the fight starts and it's a mess. They go back to the Chinese guy and they say, what do you think now? And they're like, hey, I just met the guy. We should have peace. Right. And so it's true. China It's beautiful for China establishing itself as a peace broker. But then again, we want China to be a peace broker and we want to get to a point where we can negotiate the peace. And I, you know, I've been going back and rereading John Maynard Keynes, the British economist who was so influential in the thirties, forties. And he wrote this magnificent book called the economic consequences of the peace, where he explains that in world war one, um, Uh, The reason we ended up back at war again is because the West imposed such harsh um, debt payments on the losing countries that it became worth having a war because the pain for the population was so high. And that's why after World War II, everybody agreed to the Marshall Plan and decided to rehabilitate Germany rather than to condemn it for all the terrible things that had happened, or to con- you know condemn it in the courts. But in terms of the human pain on the economy, the de- decision was made not to go for war reparations, but rather to assist Germany to become an economic powerhouse again, which worked and Western Europe had an extraordinary period of growth. Today, if I suggest, we need to be thinking now about what is the ideal outcome? Because how do you negotiate if you don't know what you're heading toward? And what is the ideal outcome? You can't just cancel China and Russia, right? You can't just say, well, they can't play. No, you've got you know a, a billion and a half people that need to make progress and have some hope for their own future. So my question is, how are we going to reintegrate both Russia and China into the world economy again. Now, people are, get really upset about this because they're like, well, we don't wanna reintegrate Russia. It's done such terrible things. And I'm like, well, its leadership has. I personally, as an American, would hate to be held to account because of the actions of you know, either Donald Trump or Joe Biden, right, to be condemned forever because they did something that someone else didn't like. I don't think that the Chinese public and the Russian public really think that what's happening here is wonderful. I think they liked when we had a globalizing economy and they would like to get back to the main business of life, which is being productive, not having to worry about the roof over your head. So my question to everybody is, okay, how do we navigate our way back to that? Rather than how do we subdue or cancel the so-called opponent?
0: That's really interesting. And, and, uh, and you're right, it's important to separate the intentions of a dictator from the the populace, because they, they may not be aligned whatsoever. And I think in this case, are, are probably frequently very, very unaligned. And, and I, you know, I have friends in Russia, and I know that to be the case, um, you could, in, you know, th- this may be a controversial statement, but you can make the argument, the biggest victims in this scenario are the you know, the 17, 18, 19 year old Russians who are looking at their future now, exiled from the world economy, wondering what kind of prospects do I have? I was planning, right, to go to university, to do whatever, and now what are my prospects, right? Because of some individual who I'm, I have no say in this decision, yep. right, has yeah. compromised my future greatly and I, I can't see a way out. You're right, So, you know, the the high road and the important road there would be to step in and say, how can we how can we fix that situation, right? For that whole generation yeah. of,
1: And it goes to a question I've been asking myself, which which is, what would be the evidence that we've passed through this moment in history safely? How would we know that we've gotten to the other side? And I think part of it is when we see, you know, the Bolshoi ballerinas on the stage in New York again. Mm. It's usually culture. It's, it's usually a cultural event where people come together without politics. That normally is kind of how we know. And for this reason, I think it's very important to pay attention to the artists. And people are always like, wait, what? I thought you were an economist. You're focused on markets, the world economy. And I'm like, yeah, but one of the best indicators of what's coming in the future are the artists. And that is what um, Ezra Pound, the poet said, Um, he called it the um, early, I think the the early warning system of society or the artists. And Marshall McLuhan also talked about artists being kind of like radar. And so if we follow where where are the artists and, and where are they leading us? What's the zeitgeist there? That's usually a pretty good sign of how the reconciliation
0: will come interesting interesting okay i like that okay i want to back up for a minute and get back to the uh, the east versus west um division here and you know you could say that the public in america and canada are probably more focused on the hot war on the ground in ukraine than the big picture uh, and real events that are occurring would you make the same assumption though about the intelligence agencies in in the west or are they completely up to speed what's going on here or are they being fooled too? What, what do you think?
1: Oh, no. I think everyone who's directly involved in all this gets that something much bigger is yeah. occurring. The problem is, how do you explain it to the public? I mean, right. like, what's the overarching narrative? And any overarching narrative that implies it's the West versus the East, it's NATO and the US versus Russia and China, unfortunately leads you straight into the potential for nuclear events. Yeah. And so this is why nobody wants to outline this narrative. There's also, you know, look, people often ask me when I when I because I worked in the White House, they'll often say, well, what do Americans think about fill in the blank? And I'm like, they think about a million different things, right? Like there's no one view. There are very few issues where there's a bipartisan consensus in America now. And frankly, I'm betting the same is true in Russia and the same is true in China. So it's not so simple as saying, okay, the Chinese view is this and the American view is that no what you have are totally competing factions in each of these nations and one has to navigate that internal competition with their internal competition with also then the complexity of the relationship between Russia and China and i've i've argued you know more and more russia is becoming a um, or has become a kind of dependent on china so really is china calling the shots but do we have you know, alignment within China? No, there's huge division of opinion. Um, And notice that currently those who oppose the opinion of the leader in Russia, they are, um, well, they're disappearing, let's just say that at a fast rate, right? His inner circle is getting smaller every day. Um, uh, And in China, those who criticize the leader are finding themselves, you know, incarcerated or, silenced in some way. In the U.S., we'd have a different approach, but, you know, do you still have a fight going on? Yeah, there's all kinds of stories about what is the position of the intelligence agencies versus each other? What is it versus the White House? You know, so that's the thing about geopolitics. It's it's a very murky space, and it's something you have to handle with incredible, delicate touch.
0: Yes, Okay, now you mentioned um, that Russia is more or less becoming positioned as a vassal state of China, right? And um, I think as far as I've heard you say, you know, anything east of the Ural Mountains now are more or less under Chinese control. Um, I think that that's right. I do. Um, It's hard to prove it.
1: Um, But that's a very large part of the world, right? Massive expanses. I was recently in Kazakhstan, and as you fly over, you're like, wow, it's it, it, it dwarfs the middle of the United States, where you think those are big spaces. You get into Central Asia and Eastern Russia, and so is it really governed, or is it just kind of um, local communities, and is it a lot of organized crime? Maybe yeah. And so, you know, whose organized crime has the upper hand right now um, in that part of the world? I for a variety of reasons think it's more Chinese than Russian. So has the border moved? No. no. But has the effective control over the space changed? Yes. And and notice that when Xi made his first trip out of China after the um pandemic. He uh, he was in, I um, can't remember where he was, but he was in Central Asia. And he basically said, Central Asia used to be Russia's backyard, but now it's our front yard. Everybody was like, oh, okay. Um, and that makes sense because China needs to acquire more resources. It cannot feed itself. It doesn't have enough arable land, doesn't have sufficient water. And so... The vast plains of Central Asia that are incredibly rich in resources and food in minerals in oil and gas. All of these are hugely valuable to China. I mean, if they're reaching to Africa for these things, it's much easier to reach right next door. So Kazakhstan, as an example, when you go there, it feels very Russian. And yet what you also feel is that the Kazakhs are liking the idea that Russia will have less power and influence now because of Putin's mistake in Ukraine, but they don't want to be under the thumb of China, but they kind of know that it's really hard not to be under one or the other when you're in their position. And all of their uh, oil, and I think uranium, which is a big um, resource they have, they can't get it out of the country without help from either Russia or China, just because they're
0: surrounded. Yes. Right, right. Okay. Now, the the other arena that everyone's focused on right now is the battle of currencies, right? So we talked about the battle between the East and the West and the public's spending most of their attention looking at Ukraine for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, though, uh, a topic I've heard you speak about, Grant Williams speak about for a long time. He's been on the show talking about this. And now we're hearing... Platforms like CNN talk about uh, and Fox News talk about the fragility of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency and the BRICS answer or uh, you know solutions to uh, to a weaponized currency and what they're proposing. Can you outline your thoughts on this on the future of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency? And then maybe I'll pull on some threads.
1: Sure. Uh so. Let me back up a little bit, because it's important to understand some background on this. One is that I have personally briefed members of Congress, and on one occasion, it was so interesting, I basically said, this would have been in like 2001, and I said, if we keep spending, we, the United States, keep spending like this, we're going to end up with a much more severe current account deficit. And the congressman leans forward and looks at his colleague and says, these economists, they're always talking about the current account deficit. And the other congressman says, yes, what is the current account deficit? And I realized, okay, I have to really explain in plain English. I said, gentlemen, what it means is that we, as a nation, spend more than we earn and we borrow from the Chinese to, to do it, to make up the gap. And they look at each other and they both basically say, There's no one in my district borrowing any money from the Chinese. Now they're not wrong, but it's important because this is the human element. Nobody feels like they're borrowing money from China in the United States. Nobody can cite a person who actually has a lending agreement from like the Chinese bank. And yet the country is only able to sustain its standard of living because China and other foreign uh, investors put their capital into the U.S. bond market. Uh, so, So how do you begin when the Americans don't realize that this is the true situation? Second of all, everybody said, well, if China doesn't keep buying U.S. bonds, then interest rates are gonna go up and the economy will tank and we'll have a mess. But what actually happened is that as the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, pension funds in America, started to buy those bonds. And so we had a very smooth easy transition from Chinese ownership to American ownership. And so the disaster didn't happen. Um, so once again, anyone saying, this is a problem, you know, everybody's like, wait, what's the problem? We seem to be fine. So let's, so we start with that. Then the next thing is everyone says, well, China is gonna create the this digital yuan what they call CBDC, Central Bank uh, Digital Currency. They've already launched it. Um, they've just announced it's it's rolling out globally. It's not in, a, in an announcement about currency. Instead, what they've just announced is that you can buy a train ticket across 140 countries and travel the world, but you have to buy the ticket using their CBDC. So this is how they roll it out is through practical means. And then everyone goes, well, they're going to have this new global currency and the dollar won't be so strong. But the the reality is this digital currency is not convertible. And I don't see how the world turns to the Chinese yuan, whether it's a real yuan or it's a digital yuan, if it's not convertible. So you still come back to the US where you have convertibility freedom to exchange in and out of it so i i'm i see the argument but in the end i'm betting more on the us than on china in this on this front the last thing i think is really important as well is the thing that really matters is competitiveness and innovation so what are the chances that china will be the most competitive innovative nation in the world I think it's lower and lower every day because they've constructed what they're calling the great digital wall that cuts off all Chinese nationals from access to the international internet. And I'm like, how can you possibly innovate at the cutting edge if you don't know where it is? Because you're not connected to the rest of the world. And then people say, yeah, but, you know, they're throwing huge state resources after things like quantum computing and supercomputing and um, new materials, biotech. I'm like, yeah, but money isn't usually what gets you innovation. It doesn't. What gets you innovation is creativity. And in the West, particularly the US, but the West, what are we seeing? We're seeing it's easier and easier for small groups of very brilliant people with not much money to create startups that are capable of generating world-changing technologies. In the West, our process is messy. It to be creative is to be messy. Um, we don't, we can't, you know, we like this idea that in China it's all like a plan. And by the way, we had this same um, what's the right word? Infatuation with this notion that if you have a grand plan. It's a better approach than this messy. I don't know. Creativity, innovation, just kind of happens in a garage somewhere. Right. Um, back when the Russians were were under Stalin, and that's one of the reasons the Federal Reserve Bank has this very Soviet architecture. I mean, if you go stand in front of it, you know, it's like got a statue of you know farmers outside. It looks like a Soviet era building, and that is because we had plans envy we thought that the right way to go that's why we you know roosevelt got into like building the hoover dam it was this we've got to keep up with the russians and they have these grand plans but it's not how america really works america works with some kid in a garage tinkering with stuff and that ends up as apple now i'm not saying every company ends up like that right it's still extremely rare but it happens a whole lot more often in America than anywhere else in the world.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. And it's funny when you phrase it like that, I can't help think about just the fragility of centralized planning in general, right. And the vulnerable points that are opened up versus the agility, right. Of, of, um, of independent innovation, right. Which absolutely. I mean, the entrepreneur is like a, Uh, a key um, archetype of America, right? Uh, Absolutely is. And uh, I'm fully on board with that. Yet we gravitate towards plans because they're so seductive. It's like, you know, 10 year plans. It's it's like inspiring and we can see the future and we just have to dream it, make it.
1: And because it offers certainty. And why is it that humans just love certainty? But <laughs> in fact, certainty is the thing that usually kills you. Yeah, and it's the yeah. uncertainty in life that brings all the joy. And it's the, we'd started before we turned on the recording. Why don't humans like change? And I'm really, as an economist, thinking this is the core issue underpinning almost everything in the financial markets is what is the human capacity and inclination for change, if the more you have, then the more agile and robust your response is to change stimulus. Um, As someone who's written a couple of books on leadership, I often talk with CEOs who are trying to drive their company towards a certain outcome. They're like, we want to raise the profitability by this much in this much time, or we want to get to X revenues. It's almost like they think they're going to the top of Mount Everest and they just have to assemble the correct team and buy the correct equipment, maybe pick the right weather, but basically we're going. And I'm like, but it (laughs) isn't a static target. It's much more like surfing. And I grew up surfing the beaches in California as a kid. It is like you're on a surfboard and it is a completely changing environment at all times. It never will be stable. There is no Mount Everest. It is a completely fluid. The world economy is fluid. There's nothing static in it. So are how good are you at being on a board and withstanding that sometimes it's raining and then the sun comes out and sometimes the waves are high. Sometimes there's no wave at all. The dark thing approaching you may be a dolphin, but it might be a shark. Right, when you can treat the world economy as this thing where your ability to change with it, your ability to be in the flow, that's the juice. Not the, I'm going to commandeer and force this outcome, regardless of how the waves are going, mm. right? It, it's a way of thinking that I think is really important. If we could just all get more comfortable with change, I really think the world economy would work better and each of our personal incomes would be better and our sense of personal happiness would be better. So that's why I'm tempted to really write about this.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Well, I've seen some of your more recent Substack articles kind of circling this subject a little bit. So I'm excited to hear you share on it. Uh, And and yeah, it is interesting because plans are so seductive. They make a lot of sense on paper and they're so logical. Right. Especially when they work. And then we can, but you know why? Because we we often, I think, we're really good at debriefing what just happened and then applying logic to it, right? And saying, oh, that happened because of steps one through seven. When in the moment, no one was clear on steps two, let alone step one through seven. Right. But when we look back in a situation, we're like, oh, here's what happened. And we diagnose it and we apply pragmatic logic to a scenario that unfolded in the world of randomness. And you know, then we go back and make sense of it
1: totally agree and even worse we love extrapolating the past into the future even though every every darn financial services product has stamped on it past performance is no indication of future returns but we believe that it must be somehow and if it worked this way for the past it must work this way in the future or even worse if it worked for that person it could work for me And I'm always trying to help entrepreneurs. I spend time, a lot of time with entrepreneurs now. And I'm like, just because someone else accomplished the task doesn't mean that you can. What were the particular circumstances that they had? Like, for example, this is a little one, Bill Gates. Did it matter that his mother was on the board of the local bank and she knew how to go about the application process to get the initial funding? Totally. If your mom is on the board of the bank and has this inside skinny on how the system works. If he hadn't had that, would he have turned it into Microsoft? We don't know. But what matters is the particular circumstances all have to come good. And uh, you're right. It's a very ancient split. Actually, there's a wonderful philosopher called um, Arthur Kessler, who was hanging out with Hemingway in the Spanish Civil War. Um, I think they were both ambulance drivers and they were both philosophers, they were writers. And Arthur Kessler talks about the Cartesian catastrophe, which is when Descartes split the body and the mind and introduced a world where we could just say, let's be logical. And anything that's intuition, anything that's got instinct, oh, that's not serious. But if you ask... Any entrepreneur, how did your success actually flow? Was it on the plan? They'll all tell you the plan went out the window the moment we started trying to do it. What worked was my intuition that this was a better way to go than that was a way to go. And so I think we're in a moment in history where that Cartesian catastrophe, that splitting apart, is actually coming back together again and more holistic thinking. on many different levels. But anyway, that's a that's a philosophical subject that intrigues me.
0: Yeah, I could go down that rabbit hole. I, I won't we'll save that for another interview. But uh okay, so then to to wrap up our our segment then on on currencies, just to just to put a a pin in that, you know, you were more bullish on the future of US dollar strength uh than maybe I anticipated, which is really interesting. And you know, it's it's often we hear people talk about, oh, the U.S. dollar, it's, it's backed by nothing. It's inflated, inflating its value away and all of this. But, you know, the U.S. dollar is backed by the net asset value of the United States, including its military strength, its education system, the health science industry, uh, freedom and entrepreneurship and innovation. You know, YouTube commenters will say it's not free in the U.S., but it's like relative to, OK, anywhere else. Yes, it's quite free in the U.S. And so all of these things factor into the net asset value of the U.S. dollar. Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, yes, but I would also say we have to be really careful. And as someone who used to be the chief currency strategist for one mm-hmm. of the biggest investment banks in the world, it is a mistake to equate the strength of the currency with the strength of the nation. Okay. The, the strength of the nation comes from the flexibility of the currency. Because the whole thing about currency is that when pain and adjustment have to occur, where would you rather have it fall on the backs of humans or on the currency they transact in? Think about it that way. So, uh, you know, if the currency won't move, then, you know, when you're not competitive anymore, everybody gets fired and you have a recession and a downturn, be much smarter to have a currency that falls. And now you, pardon me, restore your competitiveness by having a cheap currency. So to me, the strength of a nation <clears throat> is reflected by its capacity for fluid adjustment. So a flexible exchange rate is a very, very valuable thing. So we shouldn't say just because a dollar is weak, that means there's a problem. And in fact, when the dollar is weak, the Americans export more. Uh, the thing about the U.S. and North America that's exceptional is that the U.S. economy can do well either way. Most nations don't have that privilege. They are either totally reliant on exports or totally reliant on imports. The balance between the two is not so insulated as it is in the US. So that's the first thing. Um, Second thing is, look, just to be really clear, we are literally at a truly historic moment where we are shifting from basically paper money to digital money, from what we have now to central bank digital currency. Now people will say, no, 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 we've had digital for a while. And I'm like, yeah, we've had a digitized version of a paper dollar. What we're introducing now is a truly digital money that has no underlying relationship to any anchor point. And you can literally create it out of thin air You can double or have the money supply with a keystroke when it comes to central bank digital currency. So I've written in the past about, you know, sometimes when you have such a huge debt problem and the economy is not going well, one option is you literally abandon the whole system of money and accounting and you start again. And everybody's like, well, that could never happen. And I'm like, well, it happened in 1834 in Britain when they shifted from using a system called tally sticks. If you Google it, it's really interesting. They still have them in Parliament. Wooden boards that they cracked in half and you got the shorter end of the stick, which is where we get the phrase from. And that was called the stock end of the stick. And that had a record of all of your assets and purchases and tax payments. And the longer end went to the chancellor so they could track what was happening in the economy. People traded the stock end of the stick and that's where we get the term stock market from right so Uh that system worked perfectly for a thousand years until we had all these wars in europe they were really expensive how to pay for them well you can't inflate if you've got to wait for the tree to grow and then you got to wait for a whole lifetime of record keeping on the plank of wood so the government said we're going to introduce this really cool new technology called paper money and the british public were like Are you out of your mind? I'm not going to take a piece of paper that doesn't have my name on it, but I've got this record that's very personal to me. So they said, fine, we're going to burn all the tally sticks so you can't use them anymore. They took them to Parliament, and that is what caused Parliament to burn to the ground in 1834, because they misjudged how much heat would be thrown off (laughs) by the connection of the system of money and accounting. So then we all shifted to paper money. And what was the result of this moment where we abandoned the old system of money and accounting and brought in a new one? The industrial revolution happened because suddenly you could finance things so much more easily with paper money than with tally sticks. So today we're moving from the paper money or its digital equivalent to a new system of money and accounting, which is effectively blockchain is the accounting system or some equivalent thereof in conjunction with digital money that literally is crafted out of thin air it's a very i think monetary policy under cbdc is totally different nothing we know about monetary policy will apply in this new world So it is a truly historic moment, but I think people don't recognize it. What I do see is when particularly I'm lecturing here in the U.S., when I give speeches in the U.S., people are frightened of CBDC. They are very nervous because it digitally connects your um, economic activity, your spending and your purchasing with all your other personal data. And then that allows judgments to be made about what kind of person you are and whether you should be allocated capital or not. And that is a big issue, which is why I've said we're going to need a bill of human rights for the digital space if we're going to go down this road. China can do it because it's an authoritarian society, but we're not in the Americas. So if we want to protect human rights, we're going to have to figure out how to ring fence uh, each human so that they don't find their creativity a stall because they feel they're being watched all the time based on whether they order Uber eats, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream at midnight, which seems so innocuous, but actually counts when the correlations and algorithms start to judge what kind of person are you?
0: That's fascinating. Okay. Okay. Because I don't want to go too off topic, but hamstringing somebody's, uh, I want to almost call it shadow right, really hamstrings their creativity, you know, and and that getting back to the real value um, of the country, which is creativity, therefore entrepreneurship and innovation. Um,
1: Completely.
0: Very interesting. Okay. Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing is, um, if everybody's driven to the norm, what you're saying is, oh, the creativity is being killed. Yes. So you want people behaving outside the norm, which means they're going to do weird, crazy, interesting, socially, maybe challenging stuff. Again, back to what artists do. That's all they do all day long, right? Yeah.
0: That's rock and roll. That's rock and roll. And, (laughs) And like the most common names in our culture are often very disturbed and dark individuals all the way up to athletes I'm, I'm a big michael jordan fan i probably wouldn't enjoy hanging out with the guy because he's a he's a dark <laughs> weird human being i mean you know that's why he operates the way he does right he's he's there to to, to win at all costs uh and anyways I everyone mean, with everybody with their own little nuanced uniqueness but that's so beautiful right and that's what makes what makes life so interesting
1: it is and that's why i come back to you know for the last 20 years I've had everybody saying to me, China's the future and the U.S. is up the creek. And I'm like, but you know what we have in the U.S. that China is killing every day? Is this quirky, totally unpredictable creativity that Hmm. somehow creates. It somehow works. Even if we can't explain how is this happening. Right. is And I'm betting on because That's what I, I think that's it. It's the, that's the
0: essence of the human spirit. Mm. So I'm betting on that. I love that. Okay. I love this. All right. So um, here's how I want to uh, conclude this conversation. We began by talking about massive changes, right? We talked about uh, geopolitical shifts, and, um, you know, reflecting back in the 2020s might be like reflecting back, back on some kind of technological revolution. Uh, We just got into the the massive transformation in monetary policy that we're probably going to realize as well over the course of the next few years or decade. And all those things are obviously related. Knowing, therefore, that we're living uh, through a period of massive change, um, as you put it, we're not going to recognize monetary policy of the future based on what we know about monetary policy today. And you could probably expand that to all sorts of avenues of life um, how things will become unrecognizable, knowing that the real value in navigating this will be agility, right? What would you say to my audience audience's retail investors? They're individuals just like me, probably working nine to five, looking to put their cash to work, find some upside, protect the wealth they have, right? Real simple. Uh, what kind of counsel or advice would you, would you uh, give to somebody in that situation right now they're looking for the safe haven, you know, where can I protect my purchasing power over the next decade and where can I look for some upside if I'm a speculator? What, what do you think?
1: Okay. Number one, I actually, I don't always agree with Warren Buffett on every everything, although, you know, he's got a better track record than I do, but <laughs> he says mm-hmm. the best investment you can make and the best inflation hedge that exists is investing in yourself. This is so important, and particularly because the speed of change is accelerating, because we no longer live in a world where you say, oh, in college, I majored in X, therefore that's my specialty. Yeah, forget it. We live in lifelong learning now, and the opportunities to become an expert on a subject are permanent, and permanently in front of you. So you have to start to think this way, and it's exciting. You don't have to be a specialist in whatever it was you did in college you can become an expert in other things and you should so that's number 1 number 2 is look this idea of armchair investing where you sit at home and you're picking things off a computer screen it worked during the peace dividend period it worked when you know markets were persistently consistently rising This is not the world we're in now. I say go out of your house, get out there, go look at businesses, go talk to people, go if there's some cool new place in town, a new restaurant, a new something, and all the kids are going, go there and try to understand what is this phenomena? This is not an armchair world now. This is a go out there and see it yourself world. So that's the second thing. Um, The third thing is this idea um, that, you know, you could retire at 60 or 55 or 65, whatever the year is, and then you could live on your retirement. That's a construct that was created by policymakers sort of between the 1920s and the 1950s. And it worked in a world where the demographics meant that pretty much The working population, which was mainly men, were pretty much guaranteed to die three years after they stopped working. Literally, that's what the numbers show. Now, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world where we're seeing biotech extend our lives. Like most of us are going to live to 100. So, your pension isn't gonna cover that. That means you're gonna to have to work longer and you have two choices. You can say, oh my God, this is a t- catastrophe. You can say, well, actually I'm healthier. I'm more interested in the world. There's more stuff for me to learn and to do more ways I can make money now than ever in the past, right? The portfolio approach to a, to a career where you have several different consulting you, gigs, you're working with your old employer, you're working with a friend who's an entrepreneur this is actually very interesting. And what else were you gonna do if you retired at, let's say 60, Were you gonna play golf for 40 years? Okay, maybe some people, but really, is that what you wanna do with this life that we have? So like, instead of getting upset about it, and I say this against the backdrop of, you know, huge riots happening in France right now because they're raising the retirement age. I'm like, let's think about this. Is this really the right answer? If, especially if the state can't actually pay it, it's not that they don't want to, is they can't. So, what's the right answer? Go out, be in the world, be creative, find the new ways to make money. They're there, but they're for the open minded and the energetic. And maybe one last thing. Now I'm sounding like a grandmother, you know, Mm -hmm. dropping lots of like (laughs) little bits of wisdom I picked up. But maybe the last thing is, I feel like we live in a world right now where people are so certain. They're so locked into binary positions, right or wrong, left or right. Markets going to go up or down, but actually the certainty is super dangerous because almost always the thing you least expected is what actually happens. And so if we could move away from saying I'm right and you're wrong, either because you're an idiot or because you're evil, this is no way to get through any negotiation process and it's no way to live. Mm. So what I've personally been doing, particularly since COVID is spending a lot of time hanging out in communities that think totally differently from me and yeah. trying to be open to the possibility that I am not always right.
0: You know, I love that. Okay. I mean, mm. what a, what a awesome cap because and you just touched on the pension system. And immediately I'm like, well, there was a long-term plan, right? Right there. Not working totally out
1: so <laughs> great example. So much for long-term planning.
0: You <laughs> didn't expect the life expectancy to increase. Um, and it just puts emphasis on uh, value I think is so important, which is personal sovereignty and just recognizing that nobody's got your back and that's not a bad thing because it puts you in the driver's seat, right? It puts you in control. But relinquishing control and assuming someone else is going to take care of you is never in your best interest um and the learning piece you know the lifelong learning of course and the one downside to getting a degree is that it symbolizes to many people i think it symbolizes the end of the learning journey it's like this congratulations here's the award for your dedication and uh, commitment exactly and now this stage of your life has come to an end which is the a horrible message for anybody to interpret right uh it sets you down a a path of stagnation unfortunately and and as you mentioned it's probably more important now for investors to step out into the real world and get to know the businesses they're investing in it's like getting back to basics and i feel like for the last well honestly from for the entire time i've been in the market i would say that most investors they may identify as investors but they operate like traders and those are very different things and getting familiar with the underlying fundamentals of the businesses you are purchasing equity in it's a way to think about it as opposed to just trading share prices which is what a lot of investors are really just doing they're just trading share prices and trying to be smarter than the market um okay so much value here i really appreciate you coming on the show this has been super fun and i learned a lot super fun, and i, I, really, and I appreciate
1: really appreciate it. the way you kind of let me roam over a lot of territory and <laughs> And actually give you rather lengthy answers, you know, as a, as a person who's thinking about all these issues, sometimes the podcast hosts want to compress you into like two minutes. And I really appreciate the freedom that you've
0: given me to roam around these issues. Now, pleasure's all mine. Yeah, no, I I love doing it. And I love just sitting back and listening. So yeah, pleasure's all mine. Um, Dr. Pippa, thanks again. And I'd love to do it again sometime.
1: Absolutely, and I've got a column on Substack that people can find under Dr. Peppas' Pen and Podcast. Um, and I'm on Twitter quite a lot and LinkedIn. So come and say hi.
0: That's right, and the Substack's phenomenal, uh, both the free and the paid. I subscribe to both. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, and uh, and I'll include links to all of this stuff beneath the um, beneath the content. All right. Thank you so much. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor.